Well, pray with me one more time as we begin here. Father, we thank you so much today. Thank you for your great grace. Oh, Lord, those songs, the worship, the ability and the privilege to sing your praises, what a means of grace it is to our souls. Lord, we come in here needing encouragement, needing uh, edification. We need you to minister to us, and we pray your Spirit would go forth now in power into our hearts, into our minds. You would illuminate us, Lord. Help speaker and hearer together. Help us to honor your word and to exalt you in our hearts. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in what you're doing in our lives as you conform us into the image of your Son. Father, we pray for your help, Lord. I pray that you would take what is spoken today and Lord, that you would richly convict us and exhort us and encourage us and that you would admonish us to go deeper and further, to to reach, Lord, uh, to uh, the goal that you laid hold of us for, to know you and to make you known in this dark world. Give us the grace now, Lord, to, to strive for greater maturity as a church really desire that for us today. Pray that all these things would have a practical impact in our lives, in our home life, in our family life, in our devotional life. Pray that it would have power to transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. I have chapter 2 pretty much already outlined, and each one of these sermons is going to have some aspect of ministry in it or ministering or shepherding. And today it's going to be ministering or shepherding through adversity. You see that adversity really mentioned in the text here, verses 1 and 2, a couple of times. talks about what he suffered in Philippi. And then at the very end there, he speaks about the opposition that he faces in the midst of his ministry. And so this is going to be... Um, uh, a sermon that's going to talk about that very thing. The context of ministry is always opposition, always suffering, always affliction. And we are in Disneyland if we think that it's going to be any different, really. The ministry entails suffering, especially if you want to do it the right way. Uh, it's going to have hardship. There's no question about it. I mean, all the way from the beginning of redemptive history, you can trace the hardship, the persecution, the affliction, the oppression of God's people. You see it from Abel to Noah, from Abraham to Moses, all the way through the prophets. I mean, think of Jeremiah. There, Jeremiah is being installed into the ministry as a prophet, and God tells Jeremiah, he assures Jeremiah, I am going to set everyone against you including the religious people in Israel. No one's going to like you, Jeremiah. Welcome to the ministry. (laughs) But you know what God told Jeremiah? Do not fear. I am with you. Same thing He told Joshua. Do not be afraid, but be very courageous. And that courage is something that Paul mentions here, even in this text. We're going to take an in-depth look at all of these characteristics and all these principles as the Apostle Paul reflects on what had happened to him. As he reflects upon the ministry, we are going to reflect with him as he focuses on his commitment to the church, to suffer for the church, his passion for the church, and his vision to see the church grow and mature This was very challenging to me as a pastor to think, do I share Paul's vision for the maturity of the church? Question number one. Question number two. Do I share Paul's boldness to bring it about? (laughs) So there I am in my little office with my knees. This is a daunting task. Let me just say that much of this is confession time for me. Ministry is absolutely daunting. It's impossible (laughs) what God calls pastors to do. And so I think the very first thing a pastor should do is he should just admit his inadequacy. Just admit that you're not adequate for these things like Paul says. You will be overwhelmed. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul was so overwhelmed. I mean, this is the mighty Apostle Paul, the one called by God to be an example to all believers, as he himself says, for salvation. And Paul says he was lonely. Paul says he was depressed in ministry. Paul says he was overwhelmed. Paul says he he was beyond hope, in a sense. He was excessively overwhelmed and burdened. This is what his ministry looked like. Now, I should point out a little bit of a distinction between Paul and today's or uh, the ongoing role or office of a pastor. And a couple of things is, well, number one, the apostolic ministry has ceased, of course. Number two, Paul was a missionary. Uh, We can't forget that, that uh, Paul was not called just to kind of nestle down in a nice little sleepy country church somewhere in the hillside. Paul was a, uh, he was a pioneer missionary. He was a missionary theologian. And God called him not just to sit in one pulpit for 50 years and exposit the Word of God, uh, which is, you know, great and noble calling for the pastor, but, but, but really God called the Apostle Paul to be a pioneer missionary, to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth until it cost him his life. Uh, most pastors just are not going to know that calling. We're just not. But that doesn't mean that we cannot share in Paul's indispensable principles that he gives us here and characteristics of what true biblical ministry is like. We do, we can, and we will. The very first thing I want to point out is that Paul ministered with purpose. Look at the text. It says, For you yourselves know, brethren, this point was axiomatic, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, the next part is a parenthesis. To resume the exegesis, you have to go down to where he uses an infinitive. We had the boldness of our God ready to speak. So there you go. It was not in vain, but we had boldness to speak. And there's so much in that infinitive verb to speak and we'll get into that but the very first thing to notice is for the apostle paul he did not minister in vain it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't for no reason he didn't it wasn't a waste of time he wasn't wasting his time in ministry he he had a purpose he had goals he wanted to see the church built up turn over to chapter uh, three of this letter And look at verse 11 and 10, or excuse me, 9 and 10. He says, For what thanks can be rendered to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account. In other words, this church brought the Apostle Paul joy. And then he says, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. And this is the purpose of his desire to be with them again. He says that we may see your face for what? To complete what is lacking in your faith. It's almost like Jedi training. To complete your training, O Jedi. Or, you know, Padawan, so that you become a Jedi one day. In other words, what he's saying is, you're young disciples. You're young, and your zeal is encouraging, and it's thrilling, and we are, we, we are full of, as he goes on to say, we are full of joy and glory. We glory over you, but there are aspects of the Christian life that we need to complete. We need to complete your faith. We need to, we need to come into full maturity. And that was his desire, that they would come into full maturity to complete what is lacking in them. Matter of fact, this idea of completion. It's an interesting word that Paul chooses to use here. It's katartizo, which is interesting, but in the Septuagint, it literally means to make an adjustment of some sort. And then outside of the Bible in ancient uh, uh, biblical Greek, it's actually used of athletic trainers who were skilled at setting a bone that was out of place or something, something that was out of socket or dislocated it, uh, setting it back in place. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that he wanted to come like a, like a, like a pastoral surgeon and put into place or adjust anything that was out of place. He wanted to bring remedy to the church. He wanted to bring edification. So what does that look like? What does it look like to complete their faith? Well, obviously what it looks like is 
preaching doctrine, teaching them and training them in the Scriptures, establishing them in their faith, teaching them how to live the Christian life in all areas of life, which First and Second Thessalonians, not to the exclusion of all his other letters, but he gets into all these practical issues, whether it's family or marriage or raising children or behaving properly, as he goes on to say in this letter, behaving properly in society or those who are outside. In other words, having a good, viable testimony in the world. All of these things, whether we're talking about work or finances or family life, whether we're talking about domestic life or life in the church, the Apostle Paul wanted to see well-rounded, healthy, sound disciples. And he was not going to be satisfied until he saw that this is what was going on in the church of God. He goes on to talk about that his entrance, notice he says there, when he says, my coming to you, the word coming is entrance. In other words, when he made an impact in the church, this is what he was focused on. He was focused on true discipleship. And that's what we should be focused on as well. He wanted to impart sound doctrine, but he also wanted to produce genuine fruit in their lives. It ultimately boils down to conduct. Now, stay in the same chapter and just go down to verse 10. Look at what he says here. He says, this is an interesting parallel passage, but he says in verse 10 here of chapter 2, he says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. So he didn't let people sort of you know hide in the shadows. Each one, he says, what? As a father would with his children, his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. In other words, he wanted to see kingdom-minded people, people that were aware of their new identity in Christ. When you become a Christian, you have a new identity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We no longer have these carnal categories of who we are. Now, the ultimate defining uh, aspect of your identity and your makeup is, are you in Christ or not? Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Are you in the spirit or are you in the flesh? Are you in the sphere of salvation or are you in the sphere of condemnation? Are you in the sphere of life or death? That's it. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are living and dying and going to heaven and those who are living and dying and going to hell. The Apostle Paul had this sort of kingdom grid that he viewed everything through. And he says, I want to make sure that you walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom. Paul's words remind us that the goal of all ministry, brothers and sisters, is conformity to God, to His will, to His calling for us in Christ Jesus. Our calling is not at all to be left alone or to just have this sort of settled static faith. It's mobile. It's growing. It's it's progressing. Paul told the Galatians this, Galatians 4.19, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. A lot, of, a lot of ladies in our church have recently been in labor. How do I know that? It's empirical evidence. There's babies everywhere. <laughs> and you ladies could stand up here and testify to the grueling process of labor. And Paul, in a similar sense, metaphorically, what he's saying is that he was like a woman in labor pains and he agonized to see what? To see a cruciform church. To see a church where Christ was stamped upon the believers and to conform them into His image by the Spirit of God. Not through carnal means. Not through the you know, carnal tactics of consumer-driven church philosophy or whatever. That wasn't his goal. It was, it was a lot more uh, genuine, sincere than that. 
I, I, I tell you what, the Apostle Paul was such an example to pastors in this. He just cared nothing what people thought about him. <laughs> I mean, he really didn't. He's just like dominated by this idea that, you know, my whole calling, I think Paul would say, would be to live in light of the final judgment where I would have to stand before the throne of Christ and give an account. It was the, 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 the undeniable reality of the final assize, the final judgment to come that controlled Paul's motives and his conscience and his method and manner in ministry. But like I said, it's not that the Apostle Paul was content to see people saved and then that's it, sort of hands off. No, he was very hands on. Uh, ministry is hands-on. Ministry is all about people. And I know pastors who left the ministry because they don't like people. Well, surprise, surprise, right? (laughs) Ministry, people, maybe those things go together. What you get in ministry in the first place for, right? You might have to talk to someone, you know? (laughs) It's like, what do people get in ministry for if they're not ready to deal with problems that people have? Ministry is about people and people have problems. It's that simple. But it it, it, it moves us to this point that if you want to, if you want to be left alone, you don't want people in your business, you don't want people intruding into your private life, the church is not for you. And furthermore, let me say maybe this church is not for you. Because plenty of churches will operate in that way where you can just slip through the cracks, nobody knows your name, you come every week, you slip in, you slip out, you're out the back door, boom, get in, bitty bang, in the car, gone. Off to the restaurant. Nobody knows where you're at. Nobody knows what's going on in your life, in your heart. Nobody knows what is the, what is the uh, condition of your piety. And that's not the church. To be specific, brothers and sisters, the church is about accountability and submission to authority. This is what I mean by pastoral theology. Um, the Christian life is about authority and submission to authority. I don't know if you know that. Christ was submitted to the Father. Perfect, absolute submission to the will and authority of His Father. He did what the Father told Him to do. He did what He had to do to fulfill all righteousness. To live under God's law perfectly, delighting in the law of God. Perfectly submitting to God's sovereign will. And believers are to be like that. We're to be humbly submissive to authority, to pastoral authority, and to the authority of the government, to the authority uh, structures that we have you know, here and there. I recently went to a doctor, and let me tell you, a doctor carries a certain kind of authority. I listen to him. What's wrong with me? What, what is it saying, doc? You know, how much longer do I got? <laughs> you know, you're in there, and you're just, kinda, you're just under his authority. You're just, you know, you better submit to what he's got to do, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You may not like it, but you've got to submit to it if you want to get better. It's like that. Submitting to authority is a glorious thing. It's not a negative thing. I know our culture revels in rebellion. It revels in an autonomous streak where everyone does their own thing. That is as far away from biblical Christianity as you can fathom. That's why I... You know, honestly, I, I, you know, like last week I talked to a young couple in our church that, you know, y'all have been here for a while, been visiting for quite a while. Uh, what about membership? Uh, because if it's not here, I believe that God's will for you is to be in membership somewhere, to be accountable to a, a, a you know, to a, a eldership, to be accountable to a church, to formally join and make yourself accountable to a church. And if you're not doing that here, you know, maybe you might want to pray about where you need to go do that because I think that's God's will for you. You can see I'm like scaring people away. But, but it's the truth. I love membership. I grew up in a non-membership model of ministry where I was told membership is legalistic. Membership is just going to make it hard for people to grow. Membership is just overboard and overbearing. And you know what? I saw nothing but just disaster after disaster after disaster. I mean, I had pastors coming up to me asking me, is, is so-and-so coming to our church? What? You're the pastor. You don't know who comes to your church? 
See, that's just a failure, a fundamental failure, and a minimization of the authority of pastoral biblical ministry. And we think that, you know, the, for some reason, we think the apostles were just this disorganized group of men. They don't know what they were doing. No, it was extremely organized. It was extremely formal. It was ex- not formal in the sense of they, administratively, they knew what they were doing. In the book of Acts, it suggests they had meticulous lists of the people who were identifying with the church. In the book of Hebrews, we are told about a church role where everyone was enrolled in the church in heaven just like it should be on the church in, on earth. That should be the goal. Pastoral ministry is all about one another theology. It's all about what we are called to be as a household of faith. And as the household of faith, we should be the most unified people. We should be the most loving, compassionate. We should be the most sacrificial. But if we're honest, so many times the household of faith is the household of strife. And so many times the hardships of living in a house, (laughs) if you grew up in a big family, you know this. You had problems everywhere. This brother, this sister at each other's throat, right? But hardship does not mean that you no longer stick it out with the house. You got nothing, you got nowhere to go, nothing to do. You, you got to stick it out, work it out until it's settled. I think that's the right way to look at it. We're a family, and families have issues. We have problems like any other family, but the family that sticks together and works it out and works towards unity and peace, that's a mature family. Immaturity is run at the first sign of trouble. Well, guess what? When you go wherever you're going, you're about to get more trouble. Because the last time I checked, there's no perfect churches, number one. Number two, there's imperfect churches everywhere. (laughs) So you're just going to get more of the same no matter where you go. And so I think we need to have the same commitment the Apostle Paul had. That doesn't mean that there are not biblical, viable reasons why you leave a church. Absolutely. I've counseled people to leave churches. It's a hard thing to do, but sometimes, you know, if, if, if an issue has gotten to the point where you are no longer blessed at that church, I, you, want a simple, you want a simple barometer of whether or not you should leave a church, do you leave more bitter than blessed? Are you, is the church just more of a hassle than a blessing to you? it might be time for you to move on if that's the case because I really believe that's not what we should be. We shouldn't be coming to church dreading to come to church. Something is spiritually seriously wrong. I don't think that's God's will for His people. As you can see, it takes a delicate balance. We have to have a balance for all of these issues and when we think about the way forward, what is the way forward? I would suggest to you that the way forward is love, beloved. Love will lead us to sacrifice for each other, to be devoted to one another, to be committed to the body of Christ, to pray for one another, to be hospitable to one another, to forgive and be gracious and accepting of one another in the fear of God. Love will will show us how to do that. But biblical love is not sort of a passive, gullible, sloppy, you know, a sloppy, agape kind of love. No. No. No, no, no. Biblical love is actually a prudent love. It's a mature, discerning love. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. I pray, Paul says, that your love may abound still more and more. And some would say, yes, that's what we need. More and more love. Finish the verse. More and more love in real knowledge and all discernment. So it's not this sort of superficial love. It's love that is full of theological wisdom. As Paul told the Romans, being full of knowledge yourself, I know that you're able to admonish one another. Isn't that so great? He says uh, that it has to be full of discernment. It has to be full of knowledge. 
This is why we endure hardship in the ministry. These were the goals for the church that Paul, that Paul had, and these are the goals that every pastor should have. Every pastor should look at the church as his glory and crown. It should be what adorns the pastor, what rewards the pastor, what causes him his greatest delight, even in the midst of hardship. If we set our hope on a painless ministry, we will be disappointed. We will be disappointed. I mean, just look at the hardship. I I honestly think, you know, the Apostle Paul was put through all the things that he was put through. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 and following to see there the litany of sufferings that the Apostle Paul went through as he furthered the gospel and he labored among the churches. And guess what? After you get done with the beatings and the stonings and the whippings and the rods and the imprisonments, At the very end, some commentators suggest the Apostle Paul mentions his most taxing affliction of all when he says, and in addition to all these things, my great distress for all the churches. It's like Paul saying, going to prison, piece of cake compared to the worry and the anxiety and the concern that I have for Galatia who is so quickly deserting the gospel. That is an inner vexation that doesn't go away when all of the external afflictions subside. The Apostle Paul experienced such turmoil. And I'm glad that we can watch the existential struggle of this man to see him warring within as he is bombarded from without. The second thing is that Ministry is not just a matter of purpose because he succeeded in what he wanted to do, at least partially. But ministry is also a matter of boldness. Paul ministered with boldness. Now, this boldness, careful to define this or to um, uh, careful to point out that this was not sort of an arrogant, prideful, sort of cavalier attitude or daredevil zeal in the ministry. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. This boldness is defined by the prepositional phrase when he says his boldness was in God. That's a very interesting uh, phrase because what does he mean his boldness was in God? It's something like God was the source of his boldness. It was like a godly boldness that he had. It came from the grace of God. And again, what was the boldness for? Look at the text. He says, after he was mistreated in Philippi, he says, you know, we had the boldness in our God, again, to speak to you the gospel. That's what the boldness was for. It was to speak the gospel. Now, you may think that that is just a simple thing to do, And that you may think that it was just an evangelistic thing. No, it's not. It's an ongoing thing. Yes, it began with their evangelistic conversion to Christianity. But from there, it was the continual elucidation of the gospel for the church. Turn to the pastoral epistles. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is obviously the sort of pivotal text on pastoral ministry, homiletical ministry, preaching ministry, what have you. It begins in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience in instruction. So what he's saying is, In season, out of season, what does that mean? It means something like this. When it's convenient to be a pastor and speak, and when it's not convenient to be a pastor and speak. Chris, you remember being a pastor, right? Remember some of those inconvenient times where we had to come to church? Yeah. It's not always fun. It's not always glorious in the sense of, you know, it's not always a, you know, backslap and fest. Sometimes it's hard and you've got a gut-wrenching feeling in your stomach and you don't even feel good going to church. And you hear Paul saying, in season and out of season, when the pews are full, when the tides are up, and when the pews are empty, when the tides are low, when you're 
doing good at home, when you're not doing good at home, when you're full of cheer and joy, and when you're depressed and feeling sorrowful, when you're sick and when you're healthy. I think Paul would say, don't call in, crawl in. Preach the word in season and out of season. And I know in our, you know, our uh, germophobic culture that we live in, no, don't come to, if you're sick, don't come to church. Stay home, you know, bless us by your absence today. (laughs) It's just going to be tough. It's going to be hard. There's no question. He mentions that he had the boldness. And so let's put this boldness in context. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Because notice he he mentions a historical point. He says, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. So that is a historical reference to his missionary journey there in Philippi where what he went through is exactly what he's talking about. Now you can see why the apostle was still... Uh, was, 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 you know, uh, thought it necessary to mention his boldness because in light of what happened to him in Philippi, it would take boldness to keep going. He says, the crowd rose up. Uh, this is Acts 16, verse 22. I'm just condensing what happened here. He says, the crowd rose up against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off. They proceeded to or- order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Incredible. If you go to Israel with us this year, you will see one of those inner prison cells and maybe something like what Paul would have been held in. It's remarkable. It's not the Disneyland that our prisons are like today. Where you have access to television and weightlifting and, you know, you can have uh, pen pals and stuff. No, oh, absolutely not. It, it was more closer to a sewer than a hotel. You know? It was rough treatment. And, of course, this is just one occasion of his many, many, many afflictions. And so, obviously, it took boldness for him to continue to evangelize the lost, to preach the gospel in a, in a difficult context. And so, this boldness has two aspects. There's an evangelistic courage, and then there's a pastoral courage. Now, I want to focus on is the pastoral aspect of this, the pastoral courage and the boldness that it takes to do this. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 1, because Paul often refers to this boldness, or at least, if not the word, but at least the idea of the necessary or the necessity for being bold in ministry. Uh, Truly, uh, a godly courage is the way that I would define it. Um, And I think that that godly courage, again, is not some sort of pompous, prideful, arrogant sort of, uh, you know, a spirit of self-reliance, anything but. I think it it was a brokenhearted boldness. It was a boldness that kept you in tune with how weak you really are. And, and, and the Apostle Paul had to encourage Timothy on this occasion in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He reminds, of, reminds him of the necessity of this boldness. Listen to what he says. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of, of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, this is why I read verse 8, because it kind of lends to this idea of boldness. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, uh, he says, or of me, his prisoner. Isn't that amazing, you guys? This is a pastor telling a pastor, or an apostle, telling a pastor, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord. What? But he's a pastor. Why does he need to be exhorted not to be ashamed of the Lord? Yeah, that's right. We need to be exhorted as well to be courageous, not to shy away. And I tell you, in ministry, you can have all sorts of temptations to shy away from being bold. Um, Much of what we do in ministry, you know, entails confrontations. One of the reasons why people don't want to go into ministry. They don't want to confront problems. They don't want to confront sin. They don't want to deal with difficult issues. Who wants to sit and pour over, you know, two people talking about their marital problems for three hours? It's like, man, can't we just move on? No. Uh, that's, that's what ministry is all about. 
when you're in those sessions, when you're taking part in those difficult uh, sort of counseling moments with people, realize that this is what ministry is really all about. A lot of people come to the ministry and they have this sort of, you know, this delusion of grandeur. They think they're going to be like a little mini Spurgeon sitting in their library all day studying. It's just going to be glorious. You're just going to be this, you know, divine up in your ivory tower all day. And that really is very little part of it. The greater part of ministry is dealing with issues, dealing with problems, dealing with financial issues, you know, building problems, administrative problems, all of those kinds of issues. And if you have no tolerance or you have no patience or no passion and no vision for those things, you'd better rethink your call. Talk about confrontation. I want you to turn with me to a couple places. Because when I think of pastoral boldness, okay, I think about the fact that God calls us to confront issues in a certain way. And I'm so glad we're in this chapter in Thessalonians because we're going to see Paul's manner, what he did, what he didn't do, how he did it, how he didn't do it. And hopefully we can learn and get, get wisdom from this. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, again, notice the, the, the language there. If he says, be ready in season and out of season, Notice the language that he uses here. He says, reprove, that's a confrontational idea to correct someone. Rebuke, that's even more confrontational because there you're actually sort of meeting somebody at the door and correcting a sinful issue probably. Exhort, which means you have to admonish and stir people on and stir, you know, get them motivated for Christianity. Not easy. He says, and do it with great patience and instruction. Can you see the wisdom of Paul in mingling rebuke, correction, admonition with patience? (laughs) Right? Because if there's anything that can tempt a pastor to be impatient, it is the constant need of correcting people, admonishing people. It's there. You're going to encounter that all the time. And sometimes you shy away as if you don't want to confront people. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to stir the pot. You really just, it's just easier just to let things go. But that's just not your calling. That's not my calling. I can't just let it go. I have to confront it. Especially if it's a sin issue, we need to confront it until it's dealt with. Look, just turn over to the next book, Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. There's a book entitled Putting Pastors in Their Place. It's a play on words because what it's saying is a lot of pastors shy away from the authority that God gave them because they're intimidated or they want to upset people. They don't want people to leave the church. They don't want the tithes to go down. They don't want to get a reputation of being a heavy-handed, harsh pastor. And so they just sort of cower away from some of their duties. Paul says here, Talking about all these godly principles, he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. And this landed on me once when I had an issue in the church once. Let no one disregard you. Working with a volatile individual in church is combative, difficult, divisive, just had a way of stirring things. I just, when I thought about going into that meeting, it was just kind of like, Do I really need to do this? And then I thought about this verse that says, Let no one disregard you. And that's the pastoral's, that's the pastoral calling is to not fear the authority that God has given you. Uh, It's very humbling, by the way. Paul's boldness had a very specific goal. And this is what we'll see repeatedly over and over and over in this chapter. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians, because it really shows you that behind all pastoral ministry, there is an ultimate, final, godly ambition that undergirds the entire enterprise of pastoral ministry. And he mentions it right here in, in, and in other places, but he mentions it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. He says, even if I boast somewhat further of our authority, because in the Corinthian situation, Paul's pastoral authority was constantly being undermined. People constantly running behind his back, spreading lies about Paul, you know, sort of talking about that he was a flake and he said he was coming and then he didn't come and where did he go and he left us, he just left us high and dry. You know, can Paul be trusted? I don't think we can really trust Paul's integrity. He says one thing, he does another thing. 
Can you imagine what that would do in a church? That gossip just spread like wildfire. And it's all headed to you. <laughs> and you got to try to put these fires out. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If we need to assert our authority, authority he says, we will. He says, and, and it's in this sort of parenthetical statement, which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you or tearing you down. That's the whole purpose of authority, is edification, uh, being helped in your spiritual life. There's a sense in which what we're saying is church shouldn't add a bunch of new problems to your life. There's a sense in which that's true. You come to church not to inherit a bunch of problems in a sense, right? You should come here to be blessed, not to be grieved. You should come here to be built up, to be edified. And that's what pastoral ministry really is all about. That's why God equipped us with Scripture. Everything that we do in pastoral ministry entails this sort of need to instruct, to edify, to build up, and to correct. I'll show you a couple other verses. We're almost done, but not quite. <laughs> in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, you guys know this verse, right? You should know it by memory, right? All Scripture right, is inspired of God, given right, for every good work. He, if we notice carefully, that Scripture in Timothy that speaks of inspiration, we often go there to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. But the context of that, of that passage is pastoral ministry. The whole reason why he focuses on Scripture is for pastoral ministry. He says, so that the man of God may be adequate. The man of God there is referring to the pastor, in this case, Timothy. So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Part of that work and a proper utilization of Scripture in the, Bible, in, the, in the church and in pastoral ministry is to bring correction because that's what he says, right? He says that Scripture is for correction. You know, this word correction is interesting. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson said about this word in his book on pastoral ministry. He says, the, the language of correction is used in the Septuagint for the rebuilding of a city, of a, of a repair or sanctuary. Isn't that amazing? It's the, he says it's the language of reconstruction. In other words, it's the language of building up, of edifying. That's what we're supposed to be doing in the ministry. Now, last of all, and just to sum up here, look at the last phrase if you go back to Thessalonians. The last phrase reminds us of the obvious, and I want to leave us with this and encourage us here. That is that Paul ministered with or in opposition. He says, we had the boldness to speak to you the gospel of God amid much, and he actually uses that Greek word, much, um, much opposition. And the Greek word there for opposition means struggle. It's agony. It means fight. Uh, it, it means opposition. It's it's very close to the word agonia, where we get the word agonize. And so what he's saying is that ministry often is in the context of much agony, even as we have pointed out. Paul's entire life looked like that from the very beginning, shortly after his conversion. It says in Acts chapter 9, the Jews had plotted to do away with him. So talk about opposition. I mean, from day one, Paul was being, you know, there was a murder plot on his life. From day one, he had hardships. You know that when the Apostle Paul became a Christian, Acts goes on to say he had a hard time getting in the church. What? I mean, this is a Christian who can't get in the church because the Christians are afraid of him. So he had to struggle even to get in the church, let alone to minister to the church. And once he got in the church, everywhere he went, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20, the Spirit testifies that everywhere I go, prison awaits me. This is what I mean. It's just absolutely daunting, breathtaking. Paul accepted that this was his calling. He understood that in the context of his ministry, he would see his fair share of betrayal and apostasy and division and hardships and relationships and friendships that would come and go, people that would fail him. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says he doesn't even have anyone. He's got Timothy. 
and he can't trust anyone else with the church. It's amazing, right? So whatever sort of, uh, you know, exaggerated view we may have in our minds of the apostles, hopefully this corrects our thinking a little bit. That it wasn't this glorious, you know, kind of celebrity ministry and celebrity pastoral ministry that we see so much of today in our American context. It was anything but glorious in that sense. It wasn't a celebrity pastoral ministry. No, it was hard. It was difficult. It was heartbreaking. And as a pastor, let me tell you that what you will fight, the struggle, the agony that you will go through, not only false teaching, false teachers. I mean, just to illustrate this, I was preaching here. I think I told this story before. And as soon as I got done preaching, I went down. And if you guys watch me, sometimes I'll get down. I'll go down and grab a drink because I need to recover from what I just went through. And before I got to my precious water, drink of water, somebody rushed into my face and said, Hey, how you doing? And started talking to me. I was like, uh, Hey, how you doing? And before I even could hear what he was talking about, this guy began pushing annihilationism on me, uh, telling me that I need to readjust my doctrine of hell and that I need to take a look at a book that he wrote on the subject and very forcefully uh, telling me that I need to not be closed off to the doctrine of annihilationism. (laughs) What? I'm like, you do this to every pastor? You know, this is the kind of thing, you know, Obviously, needless to say, I told them, uh, my view on hell is as shut as hell itself. I'm not changing my position unless you change the Bible. Turn lastly to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Introduction to ministry means introduction to opposition, to suffering, to hardship. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, one of the most glorious passages in all the Bible, I think, on pastoral ministry. Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the key to all ministry. Grace. can't do it in your own strength. You can't figure it out. You cannot... Uh, sort of create some sort of elaborate scheme of how you're going to avoid problems in the church. No, 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 no. Your best bet is to rely on grace. These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, it says, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This sort of perpetual, ongoing, repetitive cycle of pastoral discipleship. And then Paul says to Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In other words, the Apostle Paul, he had a spiritual wartime mentality that got him through the ministry, which was so challenging and hard at times. I don't want you to think that, again, because you are not in pastoral ministry, or maybe you don't desire, or you'll never come into pastoral ministry, none of this applies to you. It does. Let me read to you from the book of Acts one more time. Acts chapter uh, 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 14, excuse me, verse 21 after they had preached the gospel to that city, i.e. Derby, made many disciples. They were returning to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's how discouraging the Christian life can be. Let's face it, right? How many of you have I talked to that Particular trials just really make you want to throw in the towel sometimes. You want to let up. You don't want to keep pressing in and pursuing and seeking God and striving after holiness because it's hard. He says, continue in the faith saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We are not thinking straight if we think that we will enter the kingdom of God on easy street. We have an over-realized eschatology apparently if we think Christianity is just going to get easier and easier and easier. Quite to the contrary, I will suggest to you that your Christian walk with Jesus Christ may get harder and harder and harder. 
as the culture gets more vile, more vile, and more vile. I mean, my wife and I went to the Apple store. Trisha broke her phone. You know how that is. We had to go to the Apple store, get the screen repaired. And there, next to the Apple store, was a, 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 a store for women's makeup. And a st- you know, it's got this huge jumbotron out in front of the store, you know, this huge screen, with 10 feet tall. It's like, and they're, you know, flashing images of models putting up makeup and stuff. And Trisha and I were just walking, you know, with Eden and whatnot. And we look over, and it goes from a girl putting on makeup to some hairy guy, a, a, a man with a beard, putting makeup on like he was a cover girl model. I said, you have got to, I'm going to go talk to a manager. You want to find out how the story ends? Come and talk to me afterwards, okay? I was appalled. I was like, this is actually being, you know, billboarded in the mall? A grown man putting makeup on his face like a girl? This is, this is appalling. And I'm like, why am I surprised? <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 it's good to be surprised. Don't ever get desensitized to that kind of thing, brothers and sisters. Always be appalled at that. Don't ever just accept it as just, you know, well, that's the way it is. No. Uh, who cares if that's the way it is? It's appalling. I reject it vehemently. I completely repudiate that. And, man, I tell you what, come talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you how the story ends. <laughs> I did talk to a manager, by the way. There goes your pastor. <laughs> Getting in trouble. Let's pray together. Oh, God. Oh, God. Father, we first confess that we are sinful, that we are fallible, We confess that we often make things difficult for one another. Father, forgive me for my impatience at times in the pastorate for not being as loving and patient and gracious as I should be. Give me more of Christ and His character and His humility and His lowliness, the example that He gave as He humbled Himself more than any man. And collectively give us a heart of unity and love and empathy toward one another. And at the same time, give us boldness, O God. A gracious, godly, sanctified boldness and courage. Courage enough to approach each other. To point out things in each other's life for our good. That each member of our church would be like a spiritual surgeon able to come alongside and to perform surgery in the heart and to encourage, even if that means rebuke, reprove, correction, all for the sake of seeing your church become that beautiful spotless bride without blemish, holy, acceptable, and pleasing in your sight. Lord, this church is an offering to You. That's what the Bible says. This, is, this church is, as it were, on the altar being offered up to You. May it be a pleasing offering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.